This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. There's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forest these days. But do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and your soil conditions? How about companion plants and various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, how can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily, my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on profitable syntropic agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through a practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable syntropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course between April 13th and the 18th. And because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on our website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now, if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees that you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers out to help you get them in the ground absolutely free. I've teamed up with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's a really ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleys or hedges to your farm, or just inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. If you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also throw in a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how this process works. So just fill out the information through the link and let's get planting. Welcome back everybody. Now, last week I started off this series on the regenerative design process, first focusing on small-scale and residential properties. Now let's take the next step up and look into homesteads. Now, homesteading is something of a unique concept to colonial American culture, and the term was coined during the homesteading acts of the 1860s. Now that said, there are plenty of similar concepts in other parts of the world. The ones that I'm most familiar with personally are small holdings and crofts from England and Scotland respectively. In general, though, the homestead refers to home and a plot of land where the residents work to provide a large portion of what they consume, and it usually includes some small production or service enterprises, such as growing and processing food for market, crafts and artisan goods, and services like repair and fabrication. The distinction that is often made these days is that of whether or not the enterprises in the home and on the land are primarily for sale or for use and consumption by the residents. Now in today's session, I'll be speaking with Drew Grimm, a longtime homesteader and educator and the co-founder of The Schoolhouse Life with his wife, Lacey. He has been formally trained in permaculture design, regenerative agriculture, and holistic management, and he uses those trainings along with years of experience to coach people in how to live a more connected life as a homesteader or a farmer. A life where everyday decisions look holistically at the land, livestock, and farmer, both physically and spiritually. Now in this interview, Drew and I talk about some of the common motivators for people moving to more remote areas and working to become more self-sufficient. Much of this, of course, is connected to fears and uncertainty in the wake of the pandemic, but a lot also come from environmental, better health, and even personal interests and goals as well. We talk about the need for realistic expectations and easing into the lifestyle rather than jumping in the deep end without any experience. Now from there, Drew tells me about how he has learned to manage his time with all of the unending projects and tasks that their home and their land require, and how he's learned to manage it all holistically. We also spend a good bit of time talking about the community aspect of homesteading, which often seems somewhat antithetical to the idea of moving away from people and becoming self-sufficient. But from my own experience, and Drew's as well, we found that building a strong community is as essential as a good food supply. Now, Drew and I have been through many of the same trainings and design programs, and I loved hearing how he's used permaculture design and holistic management principles, among others, to create the life that he and his wife have always wanted for their family. Now, if you're really interested in starting to live a more self-sufficient life and are looking into homesteading, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode where I'll tell you where you can get a free copy of my practical guide on homesteading called Homesteading for Every Home. 
So without further ado, here is Drew Grimm. So Drew, I'm really pleased to have you here. And though I'm not nearly as familiar with your work in the past, I know you've been homesteading for a long time. Can you give us a bit of a background on how you got started and where you're at now? Yeah, so our background in homesteading kind of comes from just a, a look at, you know, where was our food coming from? What were we, what kind of impact were we making in the world? And um, as we started kind of planning like our family life, after we got married, we kind of just started really thinking about like, what makes a healthy human being? What makes a good person? And um, really wanted to take responsibility for the food production in our, in our lives. And then um, making an effort to influence our community um, in a positive way, you know, teaching other people how to homestead, how to grow their own food, that sort of thing. So it really like evolved from, you know, we lived in like a little apartment and we had like steps outside of the apartment and we grew like as much food as we could in all these little tiny pots going up the steps. And, you know, from there to a urban setting where we had a quarter acre lot and we, um, had chickens and bees and we were selling at the farmer's market, just turned our whole backyard into like, you know, a little mini urban farmstead. And then um, we were able, fortunate enough to find a piece of property out in the country and um, have grown, we're on 15 acres now and uh, have cows, chickens, pigs, sheep. So you name an animal, we've had it at some point. We're kind of, kind of refining what we have now, but um, yeah kind of do the whole thing. So you sort of eased your way into this coming up with an initial vision, but without throwing yourself into it the way a lot of people are trying to do now. Is that what you recommend to people who kind of have this vision of homesteading, but haven't tried it out before? Yeah. So it was, we hit this critical point in our kind of homesteading journey where we were living in the city on this quarter acre lot. And all we wanted, and you hear this a lot from homesteaders, all we wanted to do was get a piece of property, but it was like, you know, first of all, affording it. And then, you know, second of all, finding it, especially right now, it's almost impossible. But um, so we hit this kind of critical point where we were like, you know what, instead of like waiting, let's just do what we can on our property where we are. And I think like, that's advice that we give to a lot of people is just start where you are. And on a quarter acre, or even in an apartment, you have to get very disciplined with, you know, especially in the permaculture principles it just fits so well like get very disciplined very intensive very tight groupings of plants and stack everything and you can grow a lot on a small piece of property and it gives you the practice of when you get out to 15 acres what you see a lot of people is they like put their garden like 10 acres away and you know then they have like an orchard somewhere else and everything just gets spread out if you get that discipline of growing tightly, um, then you have it to where if you grew on 15 acres, like you grow on a quarter acre, I mean, you'd have, you could feed your whole city, you know? I mean, it, so I, we highly recommend starting small, starting with what you can do where you are. For sure. And I've done that same thing with clients in the past. And that really echoes the exact same advice that Rob Avis from Verge Permaculture in the last interview was talking about as well, that with the luxury of space, you often start to misuse it for, for having more of the resource than you know what to do with. Like you said, right. putting things in inconvenient locations and spreading them out unnecessarily because you haven't had to think through all of the practicalities of how are you going to get over there, the efficiency of moving things around and having that practice of what seems like a limitation of space can get you into the mindset of working with limited resources. And it works the same with money too. If you yeah. have a whole bunch of money, people just tend to throw it around and try and solve problems with it without thinking them through really well. Well, we've, we've been, um, we've been poking the bear here recently in a couple of homesteading groups. We just released a podcast on why you shouldn't have a tractor. And mm. if you, if you want to see um, homesteaders get mad, go into a group and tell them they shouldn't have a tractor, but it's the same thing as what you're saying. Like um, a tractor should be something if you're going to get one, in my opinion, like 10 years down the road, but learn that discipline up front of not having a tractor, create systems where you're not dependent on diesel fuel and things like that. Yeah. 
Well, so you're pretty well connected with the homesteading community in the United States at this point. And though I remember it fondly from when I used to live back there, I have seen a lot of different iterations of how cultures around the world relate to living off the land and having community and self-sufficiency based in place. It's a bit different than the American cultural version of it. Have you noticed some really unique aspects in the motivations of why people want to get out of, let's say, urban or suburban areas and what it is they really want to accomplish? That's interesting. I, I feel like since the pandemic hit, it's been it's been very different. Um, I'd say pre-pandemic, you know, we've been kind of homesteading, quote unquote, for like 20 years now. Um, pre-pandemic, I would say it was it was just people wanting to have kind of a country lifestyle, um, generally just living off the land, having good access to food. Um, post or in the pandemic, I don't know if we can say post-pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I see more people like the prepper kind of people more coming into it. Um, people that want and it, it's kind of one in the same in a way. I mean, people want to know where their food comes from, but people start panicking a little bit more when you go in, like, I don't know where, how it is where you are, but like our grocery stores, a lot of times now there's stuff you just don't, you can't get. Like my wife sent me over there to get cream cheese the other day and there's just not cream cheese and there hasn't been for like two weeks. Um, the meat shelves are kind of empty now. Um, so I think people are starting to, associate like all of a sudden they're like wait where does my food come from and can I take some responsibility for providing food for my family or um you know for our community so I've, I've seen a shift in like people starting to realize that there might not just be a constant stream of food and maybe they should take some responsibility for that for sure yeah that's been a big motivation since the pandemic started like I've seen the same thing with the prepper community getting much more involved with homesteading and not just, you know, stocking up on weapons and provisions, but actually right. looking at, okay, longer term, I am going to have to make some of this stuff. And I also don't want to try and do so on a completely degraded landscape. So how do I do so in such a way that actually cares for the resources under management? And you and I have both actually, we were talking about this before, gone through very similar trainings, both permaculture, now holistic management. and right these types of designs. Uh, I've, I've done homesteading in the past. I'm, I'm looking to do a certain version of it soon in the future as I move on to a new property. And uh, I'm really interested in what your idea of a holistic homestead looks like coming from all of these different design philosophies and management ideas that differs from what you see most people talking about when they refer to homesteading. Yeah, so... I would say like off the bat, the first thing is really telling or talking with people about like what their vision is like very often in the homestead world. I think people picture like a mini farm um, and by that, I mean like a conventional mini farm, you know, so like uh, a garden that's 50 by 100 and, you know, everything's plowed. And um, so when we start talking to people about like their holistic vision it's like what do you want from the homestead like what do you want it to look like what do you want it to feel like um what kind of spiritual connection do you want to have to your land if that's something you know that resonates with you and um helping people find that is so rewarding um one of the big challenges we do is like whatever garden space you have what whatever uh, perennial space you have, whatever, you need to have an area that you can sit in and enjoy that space. So it goes from like, if you have a 50 by 100 garden in North Carolina in August, you're not going to be sitting out there. It's just, you, you know, the mosquitoes would be eating you, you'd be burning in the sun, sweating. But all of a sudden, like, if you stop and think about that, like, what could that space look like to where I could enjoy sitting out there? Um, that really gets people's wheels turning. And then uh, the uh, client we had not too long ago, he's, he described his as like, he wanted it to be whimsical. And um, you find people more leaning towards those permaculture principles of like spirals and circles. And um, when they start dreaming, instead of just trying to replicate something in like a commercial aspect. 
So we really, that's kind of where we hone in on like the holistic idea of let's bring in everything. And then not only that, but what does your community look like? How are you connected to your community? Because to me, that's permaculture and holistic management in the same, you know, um, teaching people that, you know, you can't just, you, you shouldn't try, I shouldn't say can't, you shouldn't be trying to do everything by yourself. You know, you need to be connecting with community on so many different levels. So helping people understand that and start looking for ways to connect with their community is also part of the holistic planning that we go through. I don't know if it's the same with you, but I've heard from a lot of people who've reached out that some of their core motivations, aside from taking more control and being more resilient in what they provide for themselves and their families, is also being a beacon for these communities that you're talking about and offering something to the wider population around them and playing some sort of role in the resilience and the security that the people around them have and uh, being able to collaborate beyond just having these little island homesteads where everybody has their little fortress and, and they don't share much. And it comes back to some of the early questions that I used to get a lot when I first started consulting, which was, you know, how much do I need to plant in order to be completely self-sufficient in food? Or, right. you know, this, this idea of, you know, taking care of absolutely everything you need. And like you said, going into these questions about bringing in everything, looking at the context and understanding the core motivations often breaks it down to, okay, you're either harboring some sort of fear around lack or being without some scarcity, mm -hmm. uh, but your real motivation is not to do all of this on your own. It wouldn't be fun for you. You would not have at all the type of lifestyle that you really envision in the future of being able to take time off. And there's so many aspects of being fully self-sufficient that are not desirable to most people, uh, even if they like growing their own food, like um, creating textiles or providing all of their energy needs. You know, it, it gets yeah. really, really broad and very complex. Right. Yeah. And so when you get down to the feasibility of it, there has to be some sort of collaboration and yeah. cooperation among a community. Now, you have told me in the past that you work a lot with faith-based uh, faith communities where you live in the United States, and that's a lot of the motivation for why people manage the way that they do and the way that they come together. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what that dynamic is like and how it helps to bring people into closer collaboration? Well, yeah, I think, like, so we're in the South east united states so that's you know kind of the bio quote unquote bible belt so um there is a lot of that uh it's interesting again kind of as the pandemic has developed i i feel like there's different groups of people kind of moving along but yeah there is um it's primarily christian people that are interested and i don't know like I don't know if that's fair to say because it's mostly just Christian people in the South, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, kind of one in the same. Right. But um, I think that it Christianity in itself, like for there's good and there's bad with any religion, it promotes like a, um, a taking care of one another, taking care of your neighbor, you know, um, taking responsibility for what's going on. So in that way um, I see it's a great thing. Um, our, us ourselves were Jewish. So there's like this kind of dynamic of like um, Jewish people, basically our, most of our Bible is the same as the Christian Bible. So it's the same principles of ethics and uh, taking care of each other. And um, for us, it's been a lot about connecting with the land. So the, a lot of the, the festivals and different things that happen within the Bible or it's an agricultural people. It's an agricultural um, religion um, that has kind of evolved away from that. But when you look at the roots of it, everything in there was developed or all everything that happens there is from agricultural events. Um, so I, I feel like that has uh, that connects people, I think, even at a level that maybe they don't realize to the land and into agriculture. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, in some way, and I'm always trying to navigate these waters too, because, you know, here in Spain, it's also mostly a Catholic society, although practicing 
or practicing varies among communities and it's not nearly as religious as it used to be, it is the dominant architecture of this part of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And I also, so my family was just visiting actually up until yesterday and my sister is a religious scholar and she's not Christian. She actually lives in the Middle East, so she's not Muslim either. Um, she has studied all of these in depth and has worked a lot with uh, faith based communities on ways of building community together, strengthening those connections and incentivizing collaboration and a deep set of sort of moral framework, especially among youth in those communities. And hearing her talk, like I personally abandoned religion quite a long time ago, but I have also always felt a, something lacking, not really around a religious framework, though that is how I grew up, but that there is still a need for even secular people or people without that framework to, to draw from to come together on conversations and, um, yeah, a, a shared set of ethics and morals. Yeah. It, it, it has brought people together throughout all of history. And whether you're doing that from a book that's very old or just something that you get together on uh, based on agreement, it does have an extremely unifying force that other types of motivations and frameworks, in my opinion, seem to lack or are just not as strong. And yeah, yeah I mean, thinking about it too, the, the fact that a lot of these are quite old uh, philosophies and theologies, most people did come from a rural lifestyle and made their living off the land in some way, tended crops and animals. It only makes sense that a lot of the moral frameworks that came out of them are from that context as well and continue yeah. to inform the way people manage their communities and their land. Have you found that this is still very relevant in the modern context or that a lot of the teachings from the scriptures that you have referenced to need an update in order to grapple with some of the ecological urgencies that we're facing right now. You know, it's interesting. So like within my religion of Judaism, Jews are kind of notorious for questioning everything, right? Like <laughs> there's like the saying of you ask two rabbis and you'll get three answers. Like it's, uh, so there's like the framework, the one that I take issue with is like kosher. Um, kosher slaughter takes responsibility for how the animal is killed, but it doesn't take responsibility for how the animal is raised. Um, so, you know, a cow can come from a CAFO lot and be kosher slaughtered, and then that animal is considered kosher, which kosher means set apart or holy, you know, like that to me, that animal, that ethics should be of the highest quality, you know, everything from how that animal is born to how that animal is raised. So I do think that there stands a lot of room for improvement on a lot of those things. Um, but I, when you were talking, it was making me think of the holistic context um, that I think multiple religions could come under. You know, Alan Savory talks about like he's he takes uh, groups of people that are at complete odds with each other, like African tribes, you know, and has them write down a holistic context and then all of a sudden these tribes that have been at war with each other for years now are working together for a common purpose. So I think there is room for um, something outside of religion in uh, that holistic context, which I think is just fascinating, like the depth that you can go into that. Um, have you got to that point where you started writing out a holistic context? Yeah, I've done that quite a few months ago and continue to yeah. refine it. Uh, I was actually working with that framework well before I started taking the accredited professional training yeah. and had, of course, started with that by understanding the ethics that my partner and I have in common, the main motivations and drivers, uh, even using some of the stuff that's not in the current iteration of the holistic management uh, book, the, the newer yeah. editions. Um, going into the future resource base and the quality of life statements are really something that helped to inform the initial enterprises that we're looking to research for this new property. The things that we want to spend our time doing, the income that we're going to have to generate in order to justify such a, a large purchase for us, and right. the motivations that we have beyond just what we want to do with the property for ourselves and what we want to produce from it. But the fact that my family is far away and in order to be able to bring them together, we need a larger infrastructure than we have in our apartment right now. 
and right. us both being very family oriented and wanting to create a space where we can all get together again. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I just see that as kind of like a, like you were saying, like, that's a, it's something that we can all, we don't have to have similar religions for, you know I mean? Or, or the same religion, I should say, we can create a different structure that gives us those ethics to work towards that um, will give us, you know, hopefully, I mean, if it's written correctly, happiness on the property and productivity at the same time. Yeah, because it starts by focusing on the things that pretty much everybody wants for their lives, right? Right. Uh, A certain amount of security, access to good resources, namely food, water, shelter, right? The essentials. And from there, you start to build out on your unique wants and how exactly you see that coming about. But by starting with those core necessities, it's very hard to find drastic differences between people. And being able to build out from that common understanding is, is got a lot of unifying potential, just like you were talking about. Um, Maybe you can give me some insights from your own context that have helped to shape the development of your homestead. Yeah, I think for us, a a big one is always um, behavior. So how do we want the behavior to look on our land? And then how do we want the behavior of like the animals and um, other beings on our land how do we want that feel to be and the the answer for us we started with the behavior of the animals so um whether that's like hummingbirds or deer wild animals uh cows um we we run a a wild flock so our sheep and our cows um we stand with the belief that cows know how to be better at being cows than we do so you know they we don't castrate. We don't separate moms from babies. We don't separate bulls from uh, heifers or cows. So everybody lives together in a, in a wild community. And um, that's another one of those ones where you get a little bit of flack in the homesteading community. People are kind of used to more of uh, a managed. So um, a word that within our holistic context that we try to avoid is kind of like uh a colonialistic wording so you know we're not at war with the weeds and we're not fighting the deer and you know like my parents have squirrels that like continuously take the grapes off and I'm like you know the other day they were complaining about the squirrels and then like two days ago they were complaining about the hawks and I'm like you know there's a balance here guys like we we don't have to be at war with nature so within our context that's like something that we watch and really catch ourselves on my wife and I will like catch each other on it like hey you're using like a a colonialistic word on like um on whatever is going on like I mean it's tough sometimes right the way we were raised like weeds popping up and you want to fight back the weeds but what if we don't say fight back the weeds what if we say work with the mulch or you know different things so that's been um that's been a huge breaker is just changing that mindset, which falls in within our, our holistic context of how are we behaving on this land? Are we working in partnership with what is on this land or are we trying to dominate this land? Yeah, that's been one of the powerful things that have come out of this training as well as I've gotten deeper into it. That idea of uh, behavior, like you said, is not something that you can control outside of yourself. And so in order to try and uh, coax the behavior that you want from others, from other living beings, you have to model it. And it really brings me back to a core concept that has driven a lot of what I've tried to do in my professional life and my relationships, especially, which is based things on integrity. It's one Mm. of those loaded words that fits in a lot of ideas and ethics that I think are really worth uh, pursuing and trying to move closer towards. in everything that you do, everything that you make and how you relate with one another. Um, and, you know, the goalposts can be moving. <laughs> that right. Working yeah. in integrity can look very different working with a business associate than it can uh, working with an ecosystem or, you know, vice versa. And it's a matter of constantly observing and listening, which also comes up, of course, in permaculture design and so many other concepts um, and teachings and constantly working to refine 
a sense of it's not about you. Uh, and you are a yeah. cog in a wheel that can have an, an immense effect, but this system will continue without you. And in some cases, it'll continue on better if you get your ego out of the situation and listen to what you know this ecosystem is trying to move towards in its evolution. Can you be an right. asset to that? Or are you inflicting your own desires in a way that um, prevents it from actualizing its potential? Yeah, to go in on this. <laughs> it is. It's, it's funny, like I, the integrity word. I always think about like um, you can find like how well you're in tune with that when you're like loading animals, loading or unloading mm. animals, like um, cattle, sheep. Like I check myself a lot there, but like you know, like you see those memes going around. Like if you're still together with your partner after you've loaded cows, you know, you're in a good spot, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. But like the context is we had to never push animals other than like pull them. And sometimes that's easier said than done, but um, it's just, you know, another, another way of, like you said, of trying to get out of it. Maybe that cow knows something that we don't know. Mm, for sure. And that kind of leads me to another part that I wanted to focus on, which is a lot of the unexpected uh, trials and challenges that come from adopting this sort of homesteading lifestyle where you're much more responsible for the things that you consume and producing the things that you and your community need. I think there is, especially thanks to social media, a very romanticized view of what it is to work the land. And right. there's also at the same time a reason why rural populations have flocked towards cities and more consistent incomes and working hours that have an end to them and all, <laughs> right. these, other, all these other things yeah. that, that, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to both, but it's very important to understand the responsibilities and the challenges that you're getting into when you take on uh, responsibility for managing plants, animals, and an ecosystem. Can you talk about some of the things that you really learned and had to figure out for yourself as you moved up the scales to the homestead you have now? Right. Yeah. I would say like the first one is most homesteaders, I'm going to stereotype a little bit here, but most homesteaders have children. So, you know, designing your systems for children, I, I've seen it go either way, but um, a lot of people get frustrated with their kids not helping and, or not being able to help at a small age. But from the beginning, I think because we were able to scale as we had more children um, and we don't have a ton, we have four. So it's not like, massive amounts of kids but um but scale building things like it's simple things like fence latches you know at a height that like a, a five-year-old can reach versus an adult um building chicken tractors that you know an eight-year-old can move versus like the massive joel salatin one that i can barely move you know like um that was one of the things was stepping back seeing how can I make it so that my kids feel successful at what they're doing? Um, and how I think that's a, an important part in a challenge of homesteading is including your kids, letting them see that. I think that a lot of like you kind of alluded to a lot of second generation kids leave the farm. And I think it's um, multi-layered, but I think some of it is that just nonstop work or that nonstop uh not able to help until they're older like you know giving them ownership of what they have uh, our kids are in charge of the chickens and sell the eggs down at our roadside market you know like so giving them an enterprise and letting them be part of that um, the other big issue i see with people is not designing a system where they can leave if they want to so a homestead and i feel like it's pretty much true of a farm also you almost at some points feel like you're tied to it. Like pre-pandemic, we loved to travel and generally about every two months we traveled somewhere and would leave the homestead. But we designed systems so that one person could stop by every like three days and take care of all of our animals. Um, you know, what that's the watering system, the feeding system, the paddocks, all of that was simplified so that they had the ability to be able to do it quickly and easily. Um, so you don't have to have like a farm hand on hand, but thinking about those kind of things, I think is very important and, and has been challenges. 
I would say the other challenge is money. I mean, you hear that. I feel like no matter what you're in, right. You run into very few people that feel like they have enough money, but um, being able to design and build things at a low cost is I think important. You see a lot of homesteaders go into just crazy amounts of debt and I'll poke that tractor bear again, like, you know, getting a homestead and then going into debt. Someone literally said this on my post is the first debt you should take is on a tractor on your homestead. And, um, you know, going into debt, I'm just kind of opposed to in general, but like putting that as your first priority, there's a lot you can do before you need to go into debt. And as soon as you are, it makes spending money on other things really difficult. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I am generally of that same opinion. I, I've heard some conflicting advice on like try and debt finance the regeneration of, of yeah. different places. Like I, I've seen people do that successfully, especially like Mark Shepard, who I had a chance yeah. to talk with uh, back at our conference here in Germany a couple of months ago. And he's got a whole model on how he does that. But it's also very important to know that you have to have a very clear plan yeah. and, and a lot very well figured out before you start doing it that way. Well, um, and he's got like, he's a early founder in organic Valley. Yes. So like I, I tell people, you know, like if you can have another revenue stream like that, you know, I mean, that's all like, then, yeah, it makes sense. Like if you know, but if you're coming into it and going into just crazy debt. Yeah. Well, so I'm on the section in um, the accredited professional for holistic management where we're focusing on holistic financial planning. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying this part because I have no financial planning in the past. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about time I got some. Um, But also there's some really great uh, just general principles in there, such as planning profit first and knowing the difference between investments that depreciate and those that generate money for you and you know you there is obviously a a much larger conversation to have about whether a tractor makes sense in a different context but ultimately it comes down to is this resource going to make you more money or is it just going to you know be a source of uh maintenance and constantly putting in more fuel and like just depreciating over time which I mean, vehicles are very well known for doing. Right. Yeah. 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 Whether, whether it's a tractor or a truck or an ATV or something, you right. know, how yeah. well can you do without it until it's absolutely necessary and guaranteed to actually make you some revenue and justify that cost. But that goes yeah. for a whole lot of other financial planning. Everything. Uh, decisions. Yeah. Yeah. The other one you see a lot is fences. You know, people will sure. spend planning too. It's like, that those fences have to make you money. Like you've got to plan that so that that fence is holding in livestock that you're going to be able to sell to, you know, generate revenue. So yeah, there's some tough ones there. Yeah, for sure. And in the practical planning and, and kind of preparation, especially if someone's getting into homesteading for the first time, how do you find a balance in all of the things that need to get done and the things that you want for your family and your quality of life? It seems like, of course, the, the chore list is never ending, but this is something right. that you've put a lot of thought into about how to manage that time and stay on top of the necessary work. Yeah. Um, so we definitely apply the permaculture principle of really not doing anything for the first year. Um, and that, that one gets a lot of <laughs> flack, you know, somebody, I mean, somebody has waited a long time to get this piece of property and they want to hit the ground running. And the first thing I tell them is like, let's not do anything as far as moving things or, you know, um, so that's the, generally the first rule that we apply. And then as far as time management, it's really a lot about prioritizing and falling into that holistic man or a holistic context. What do you want out of this land? Like you don't need every homestead animal that is around to be on your homestead to enjoy that. So let's scale it back. Um, the other thing is we like generally encourage people to wait three years before they get chickens, because again, like learning how to manage chickens properly takes a little bit of time. Learning where they would do the best on your property takes a little bit of time. So we really like, it's a very like slow steps 
in that direction. And that way you can build up a chore list that meets your context um, of like, I, I only have an hour before in the morning before I go to work for the day, you know, do you want to spend that hour doing chores or do you want to spend that hour sitting in your garden drinking coffee? You know, like those are two completely different looking homesteads. And if you stop and think about that, you can design a beautiful homestead that maybe just you're growing flowers in a garden and, you know, that's all you have. Um, it doesn't have to be. I think a lot of people think, let me get a homestead, a tractor, some goats and put a fence and their life's miserable. And, you know, I heard a stat not too long ago that most homesteads, um, most homesteaders fail within six years. So the first two years are kind of good. And then the next four years, it's kind of like, I hate homesteading and then let me sell the homestead. So, you know, the homesteader life is not very long. And I think it's because, again, you know, they're, they're, they haven't stopped to look at that holistic context and where, where do I want to spend my time and how do I want it? My wife and I have this garden space that she's created outside our back. And uh, every morning we sit out there and drink coffee, but it, it's like, there's all these flowers and things and we watch hummingbirds and, you know, like migration of birds and we have mulberry bushes and like trees out there. And it's like this little garden of Eden, but that's what we want. That's what brings us happiness. Um, so that's like number one priority. If I'm not able to do that, then I start looking at what's not allowing me to do that and start weeding out those things. I really like what you were talking about there with uh, prioritizing that year of observation. And I generally agree as well, but I also wrote an article to accompany it for those people who are super antsy to get started about eight things yeah. that you can do while you're still observing your, your, your plot and before you actually finish your design. Uh, things like starting a plant nursery, uh, yeah. getting involved with your community, volunteering and things like that, uh, that can set the base to really get running by the time you do start implementing things. So there is that balance in between yeah, don't start any major projects. You're going to learn a lot in that first year and it's going to be essential to informing not only how you're going to uh, start the implementation process of a design, but also the, the balance of time and the lifestyle that you want to have around it. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of active things that you can do which can advance yeah. that observation. It's also at the same time, not a matter of like sitting on your porch and just watching the clouds go by. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah, one of the I, reasons why people shy away from it because it often gets framed in that way. Like really right. don't touch anything and don't interact, you know? Yeah. Whereas observation is very much a contact sport if you're doing it right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I tell people like every time it rains, you should be outside walking around, seeing where the rain's going, you know, following the puddles. Uh, that's and again, you know, same with the sun. And I will say like, you inspired me with the uh, nursery one after I listened to that podcast. I think it was with Akiva. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I told my wife, I was like, we got to, we've got to start a nursery. I don't know why that's not like on the list of year one thing. So that is on our list now also. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. There's a lot you can do. Um, we also have, we call it the farmer mastermind. It's just a group of people that gets together once a month. That's like everywhere from, um, like aspiring gardeners to like full on market gardeners. And we encourage people that like don't have a homestead or don't have a farm, come and sit. And we go around the room talking about, you know, each farm, what's going on and how can we help. But um, we have a couple of aspiring homesteaders in that group. And they, they're like, man, this is like gold. And, you know, I was sitting there like last month thinking, I really wish I would have had this because I mean, the, the knowledge that you get from hearing what people are dealing with in real life is just, I mean, it's priceless. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes along with the importance of community. Not always is it just the people in your immediate area. Sometimes it's finding a way to connect with like-minded people who are working with similar problems. And that's one right. of the reasons why I'm so involved with building the community for climate farmers to help people who are making that transition from conventional to regenerative agriculture here in Europe, because there are quite a lot of roadblocks here that I didn't realize until I started to understand the European context a little better. But now mm. that I'm here, it's really obvious. Like 
people don't speak the same language within a very short distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is exchanging tough. ideas and differences in regulations are really kind of bungled up by not having that ease of communication. Mm. There are still a lot of things that are advantages here. I mean, it's a it's a generally very wealthy area of the world, so access to resources is a, definitely above average. But like anywhere else that I've seen around the world, uh, agricultural communities are really suffering. Those, yeah. those rural communities have been on the decline for a good hundred years now, where you yeah. have you know, fully abandoned towns and crumbling infrastructure, not nearly as much access to markets and transportation when you get further out. Um, it's really important to have support when you're trying out new things, especially in areas that are not traditionally very open to radical changes or um, straying away from the way things have been done for a long time. Have you yeah. noticed that that's an, one of the challenges for the homesteading communities you work with? It is in a lot of ways. We've been kind of, we've been toying within the past seven months. We've been messing with kind of this connection of local community connected by technology. So we have an online market that we've been doing. And it's because of the pandemic, you know, a lot of like farmers markets shut down. Um, but we were able to find like this app that we can basically host a farmer's market online and then anybody can shop it and then come to our farm store and pick up. Mm. So it's, it's been an interesting, like kind of getting out to the community and making them aware of this connection to it's like a convenience factor. And I think that's part of some of the tough, what has happened with rural is, you know, um, rural people can't necessarily it's it's a strange juxtaposition in my mind of like there's food deserts out here right i mean right. like you think the people growing food would have access to good quality food but generally it's going into the cities or in getting marked up at ridiculous prices so how creating a market out here for the people growing the food to have access to like our goal is to replace the grocery store so you should be able to find everything you need within our market for this local community. And um, that so far, we, I mean, we've had to connect with farmers like 45 minutes away and, and closer, but it's, um, it's a challenge like that a lot of the rural people are not interested or haven't been educated on good quality food and why it, it matters, you know? So there's, yeah, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of struggle within the rural community. Mm, for sure. And I guess that's one of the other things with the dichotomy of, of getting into homesteading that probably contributes to that high failure rate within those first six years is that uh, there's these challenges in rural communities, but then there's often also this lack of understanding about whether or not they're getting full into a business enterprise or whether right. it's going to be a hobby that they just do in their spare time and the level of intensity that either of those things require. Um, with the yeah. homesteading communities that, that you interact with, is there a tendency towards trying to make all of the income off of the homestead or are they juggling off homestead income streams with managing the property itself? Generally, most homesteaders we meet are, um, funding their homestead from an off farm job, an off homestead job. Um, more and more, again, I feel like it's pandemic related people have started realizing hey I really like staying home with my family you know and like how can I market what I have in a way that um, supports income off of the homestead but what we've run into is like you said like it's a business at that point like you can no longer really call it a homestead it, I guess like technically then it becomes a farm right and so now we need to look at marketing and holistic financial planning and, you know, this whole line of like, what are you doing? Like, it's no longer just a, um, a hobby. And um, it, it's been an interesting journey with people in like that whole, we, my wife and I like kind of nerd out on marketing, like we love it. But like, you know, someone will bring like a carton of eggs and be like, hey, can I sell these at the market? And it's just like in a regular cardboard Mart egg holder with no kind of label or anything. And it's like, you know, there's this whole education factor. So the online market that we've been doing has like, that's like a 
kind of a passion project for us is like this, like let's get farmers and homesteaders learning how to market and sell their products and, and maybe make some income to where they could cut back their hours or, you know, um, just supplement some of the cost of the homestead itself, which generally, I mean, you know, like running a homestead is expensive. So unless you're justifying those expenses as high quality food for your family, which is kind of like how we do it, it's like, you know, I raise enough sheep that I don't need to buy lamb from the grocery store. I'm building my own, you know, grocery store at my homestead, basically. So there is elements of that. And then we encourage people to do education also. You know, there's always, everybody has kind of a specialty. You know, there's the 10% expert rule. If you know 10% more than your audience, you're an expert. So, you know, like helping people learn something that you know is, is a valuable skill and worth being paid for. So I think a lot of homesteaders don't value their time and themselves enough and uh, could be making some income that way also. For sure. There's a huge amount of opportunity here, especially with the online tools that can get a message out and uh, different types of resources out to an audience or a demographic that you never had access to just a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. But of course, there's a learning <laughs> curve that comes along with that too. How to, for sure. Yeah. How to get a storefront up online. And, you know, I'm not an expert in any of these things. I look and I'm constantly learning with these as well. Um, yeah. But so you've been not only homesteading for, for quite a few years now, over a decade, but also creating a bank of educational resources that, you know, just like you're talking about, can be utilized by other people going through a similar journey. How did you start to realize the need and start to fulfill mm, what there is a demand for with the communities you're interacting with? Um, a lot of it was we just kept getting the same questions over and over, uh, especially like early 2020 when you know, grocery stores were empty. People all of a sudden really wanted to know where their food was coming from. Um, and we have been developing things prior to that. I think before that, a lot of it was people were just kind of like, what are those weird hippies doing, you know? And then, then it kind of like, you know, people would come out and be like, wow, that's really neat. I could never do that. And then all of a sudden they're like, I probably do need to do that. How do I do that? And, um, so we started answering those questions and, um, I found like typing the same email was like over and over wasn't as personable as like, let me just make a video about what I'm doing. And um, I actually took a challenge on recording a video of content every day for 365 days. So and I did it I, every day. I would go out there and just something new, something different. I mean, it would be, you know, maybe five minutes, but I would, record what we were doing and then we just kind of started putting that into a library and if people had questions like you know here's a library of different things and if it's not in there let us know and we'll make a video about that nice yeah that way it's kind of low pressure it grows organically and did you have a real objective of creating an educational database or online courses from the beginning or is that just how some of your offerings emerged as there was a, a clear desire for them? You know, it really was just kind of like an organic growth. It was kind of like, um, I don't think at first it wasn't really the idea of selling it. It was more of the idea of just creating it, um, helping people out. And then as it kind of started getting to a larger size, I was like, you know, we should just charge a little something for people to have access to this. And, um, yeah, it just kind of went from there. Right. Now, now we kind of more, we have that library, but then we also will do just, we call it like a homestead audit. So it's like a 45 minute call where you can talk with my wife and I, and we just kind of like open up the fire hose of like, here's what's going on, you know? So it's, it's a different approach, but I like, we both like the face to face. What we found wasn't fulfilling with the library aspect was, it was very much like, you have a question, here's the library, go check it out. I like to kind of work with people and, you know, feel the energy and that kind of thing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we are constantly talking about the context is so important. And a lot yeah. of that stuff only comes out through a bit more of an intimate discussion. 
Uh, yeah. It's hard to get that all in either a, like a form online or, yeah. you know, it, it takes the, the personality out of it, which is, you know, the, the key to those quality interactions and, and relationship building. I totally agree. Exactly. Yeah. So what are some of the big things that you're excited about in this upcoming year? What are some projects that you're working on at the moment? Um, we, the biggest one that we have coming up, it'll be in June. We're calling it the Homestead Skillshare. Um, and then we just came up with a de- the tagline of a different kind of demo day. So it'll be, um, we're gathering up homesteaders that specialize in different skills. And we'll have a like live in-person event out at our farm where you can come and see like firsthand, like what's it look like to process chickens or what's it look like to put up fence. Um, and we, our goal is we have about 15 different categories that we'll have people at and um, similar online so that people like in our global audience can also participate in that. But that's, that's our big one. The other thing that we're running for the second time is we're doing farm camp. So we uh, it's for eight to 12 year olds. So we advertise kind of like inner city and urban people to come out and experience the farm life, you know, like a, what's a sustainable farm, what's a permaculture farm. And we do everything from like moving the sheep and cows, you know, um, doing like holistic management on a kid's level. So last year, like I took them out to the pasture and I said, you know, what do you see out here? And they're like grass. I was like, okay, like I want everybody to find four different species of grass. And I think they came back and we had like around 140 different species of grass out in our pasture and we sat down and we identified all of them and it was just like to see the kids like light bulb moment of like it's not just grass like there's a lot of plants out there you know so that that kind of like teaching kids we had another kid that had never eaten a blackberry off of a vine before like didn't know that you could just pick them and eat them and you know so those kind of things uh, are very fulfilling for me is like letting people discover where food comes from and how it, how it looks and grows and, you know, all of that stuff that just connecting them with the land is really powerful. Oh, it's so essential to get that early in life. You know, it, uh, you can develop it from an intellectual point when you're older, I think, but there's something about having that spark and understanding when you're a kid that, that follows you for the rest of your life. That's kind of hard to bring in later on. It's one of the reasons why I was so excited to have, my sister and my little nieces come out from Kuwait because oh, wow. talk yeah. about an urban and desolate right. environment. The only plants there are very <laughs> Not carefully much. taken care of yeah. got irrigation and stuff, but it comes from like desalination plants and then wow. to be able to come here and uh, explore the homestead, or I guess it's going to be more of a farm. It'll have a production element uh, once yeah. we get started and um, yeah, have that connection being able to see, like, I, I kind of dedicated my mornings here because I was able to shift my work hours to later to taking them to jungle school in the morning. Oh, and, wow. You know, they're, they're still really young. So it's very basic stuff like, you know, yeah. playing with sticks and rocks and going down to the river. And, but man, yeah. they picked up really fast, started to identify trees by their leaves and such. And yeah, showing them how to plant different things. My sister's done a great job about having a little garden up on their rooftop terrace. Oh, that nice. It's a whole nother thing yeah. being able to go out into a forest and interact with it. Yeah, we have um, we have a spring and a fall forest school. My six year old and I were walking through the woods the other day. He always comes with me. But as we were walking through the woods, he was picking up like tree bark and leaves and different things. Uh, to make teas like he knew like the plants in the woods and it's just like this moment of like oh man this guy will always be all right like you know at six he had like this armful of plants that he was bringing back to the house to make all kinds of you know concoctions with but it's amazing what you can uh, like you said spark at that early age that's really beautiful that's really cool so look, Drew, uh, we're about running out of time here. Can you tell our listeners where they can find the rest of your resources and get in touch with you? Yeah, so the schoolhouselife.com is kind of our main hub. Um, we're on all the social media and our podcast is The Schoolhouse Life. So love to have people listen in and uh, let us know. You know, if you got questions, feel free to reach out to us. Excellent. Well, Drew, it was really a pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad you reached out by email a little while ago. And I really look forward to staying in touch. 
Now, thanks again to Drew Grimm. I'll be posting all the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the episodes from the previous five seasons for free. Now, as I promised at the beginning, you can also get a free copy of my book, Homesteading for Every Home, through the link at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of this ongoing conversation happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Now, though I'm publishing some pictures and videos of my own design and implementation process of moving to my new property on social media, Instagram and such, there's a lot more personal content that I'm only posting on the Discord. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators by signing up through the link on the website. Be sure to stick around as well for the next episode in this series on regenerative design, where I'll be talking with Darren Doherty, the founder of Regrarians and the co-author of the Regrarians Handbook series about farm-scale design and project implementation. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from, and I'll catch you on the next episode. That's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.